Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. This is another episode for students of mine, people who visit my website over at bradleylaird.com and who are going through any of my free materials or for people who have purchased any of my ebooks, courses, and video lessons. That's the purpose of all of my podcasts is to provide additional information to you, the, the visitors to my site and my customers. Now, if anybody else wants to listen, that's perfectly good too. It, for some people, it may be just a form of entertainment and I, I am perfectly okay with that. This episode today is going to be about comparing professionals to amateurs. Now, you may never be a professional musician. On the other hand, you might. You might be one right now, for all I know. But at whatever level you take playing bluegrass music, whatever level you seek to achieve and do achieve, um, be it you know, a really active uh, player in jam sessions in the area and you go to a lot of festivals and you do a lot of jamming. Maybe that's where you want to go. You can be very good at that. And that would equate to the professional. You could be more or less a professional jammer if that's your desire. You could be, um, you know, a songwriter and a home recording enthusiast and you're, you're, you're trying to record, you know, bluegrass songs and things like that and never be in a band and never go to festivals or anything. That might, that might be your thing. And you could be very professional at that. Or at the other end of the scale, you could be a total hack. And I'm using the word amateur here. I'm going to, throughout this presentation, I'm going to talk about pros versus amateurs. And that's sort of, um, you know, belittling the amateur. And so from the beginning, I want to say that amateur itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It typically means one who does something for the love of it, as opposed to doing it as a business. So you could be an amateur at something and be extremely knowledgeable. You may be more knowledgeable than certain professionals. Uh, amateur radio is a great example of this. It's not meant that you're, you know, some loser hack that doesn't know anything about radio. Radio amateurs, ham radio operators, I would venture to guess often know 10 times as much about radio as the typical um, employee at a commercial radio station. Now, perhaps not the engineer at the station, but amateur itself does not necessarily mean, you know, poor quality, lack of knowledge or anything like that. What I'm really talking about here is a scale that goes from a total clown hack. This guy knows, does not know what he's doing all the way to the seasoned professional who really, really knows what they're doing, knows what he or, or she is doing and just does it great. It just comes across to you what they, how they perform comes across to you as professional. I mean, you, you have sat at a festival or, or this would really be obvious if you were the stage manager at a little festival or event, or maybe you were the MC. And you, you got to watch all the different acts that came up, you know, came up, appeared backstage, getting ready to go on and then went on and you got to see their performance. If you've ever run sound at a festival or stage managed or even assisted backstage at a festival or emceed or something like that, you see a wide variety of bands and their behaviors and attitudes and characteristics. That's the perfect opportunity 
to witness a lot of this stuff. Sitting out in the audience, sometimes you get a limited view because you only see the on-stage on persona of each of these acts. Let's say you're at a festival with 10 different bands playing. From the audience, you'll you'll see some differences. You'll see, you know, you can tell the pros from the amateurs. I'm using the word amateur, even though I probably should use the word hack. Um, but I'm going to stick with amateur because that's the way I wrote my notes this morning when I put this together. You could tell the amateurs from the pros. But how do you do that? How do you tell the difference? Now, backstage, it might be even simpler. If you're more observant of some of the things that go on backstage or after the show, then the clues are a little more. Sometimes on stage, you know, some amateurs kind of pull it together pretty good and come off looking like pros. And hey, that is much to their credit. But before I go through this list of ways to differentiate between a professional on, well, let's call it the high end of the scale, all the way down through getting down into amateur and then total hacks. Before I get into all that, I want to mention that you get cues. I, I think this is probably the most important point here. You pick up cues subconsciously or consciously from the musicians, the band that you watch and listen to. And then you put them on the scale where they fall on that spectrum all the way from this, these guys, oh my God, who hired these idiots? Oh, that's the hacks down at the bottom up through the amateurs, the local semi pros all the way to the pro. You're the one that decides what they are. They, they are not the one they can attempt to convince you. But at the end of the day or at the end of the performance, you decide what they are. You're the one that makes up your mind about where they fit on that scale of professionalism, which includes good music. That's part of being a good professional musician is to play good music. But if, if you play good music, you can still be a, a creepy hack and, and play good music, but wreck it all by the other things you do. But what I, what I want to point out is that impression that you get, you hold on to at least for a while and it will color your impression of their entire performance. In other words, if you give off as a performer, if you give off the vibe, the, the conscious and subconscious cues that you're an amateur and that you really don't have a lot of experience and you, you don't really know what you're doing and you're, you're nervous. And if you give that off, you have a much larger hurdle ahead of you to convince the audience that you're also a great musician or even a good musician who plays well. And, you know, people are going to like your show and, you know, they have to get over that hurdle of that first impression that you gave. If on the other hand, you present all the visual and auditory cues that say, make people, their first impression is, Wow, oh, these these guys are pro. I'm about here. I'm about here. A professional band here. Then they don't have that hurdle to overcome. You already assume that they can. They are professionals, so you're gonna hear their music differently than if they came out and they did everything wrong. You know. So anyway. Before I go through this list, and I'm going to try to go fast because I've been getting too long on my podcast, and with the arrangement that I have with my podcast hosting company, who I pay to host this stuff and deliver the files to you, they limit me each month to the total number of megabytes that I can upload. So if I get too long-winded and do four one-hour episodes in a month, 
I, uh, I, I don't want to move into that territory where I have to pay for an upgrade and be paying more money to them, you know, since it is a quote unquote free podcast. Anyway, so I'm going to race through the list of the, the diff differences between pros and amateurs. But before I do that, remember that even if you're not of professional caliber and may never reach that and maybe don't want to, I am quite sure that you do want to be your best, that you want to be good at whatever it is you do. If you're Picking in a slow jam, you probably want to be good at that. And these, this sort of, I'm going to mostly talk about stage performance of bands who, you know, get hired to play at a festival. That, that's kind of be the example I use. But these things apply to a lot of other things. And like I, I often talk about in other, other episodes, these things apply to other areas of your life as well, you know. You can be a slob at work or you can be, you know, that crackerjack employee that seems to have everything on the ball. And, and that's what I'm talking about is being on the ball, having your ducks in a row, you know, knowing what you're doing, giving people the impression that you know what you're doing and, and really fulfilling that too. Because, you know, it's one thing to create a false impression and then, you know, fall down on the job and you don't, you know, you, you acted like you knew what you were doing, but then you revealed that you didn't. I'm not talking about that. So anyway, being, you know, part of being your best and having your music perceived, whether it's at a jam session, playing a little local coffee shop at a open mic at a little town festival, you know, moving up the scale to a local bluegrass festival, a one day deal or a bigger regional festival or you know, you go all the way to the top. Anywhere along that scale, I know you want to be perceived and your music and you be perceived and accepted at the highest possible level. You know, to put it simply, in other words, you, you, just like me, you want people to like you and to like what you do and to like your music. So, in order to do that, I think it's a good idea to think about what amateurs do, which a lot of people don't like and, and don't like their music and don't like their looks or don't like, you know, that camp and compare it to what many professionals do. You know, when I went to see Del McCurry back a few months ago, uh, everything they did, everything they did said pro everything. And a lot of this, when I was making these notes, I was kind of using them as an example. There were no slip ups, everything, every behavior, every impression that they gave exuded professionalism. Even when Del McCurry himself forgot the words to one of his biggest hit songs, Vincent Black Lightning forgot the words. But he handled it in a very professional manner that just endeared him to the audience. He, you know, you, you, you felt a little sorry for him, but then he, he laughed it off and made a little joke about it. And, and it just drew people in. It was like, this is like, you know, you just love this guy because he's being honest about it. You know, it was an amazing performance. But not to, not to get off on that. I have seen plenty of bands play. I've been in bands. I've and and the bands I've been in have made some of these mistakes that I'm going to talk about. So let's just get right into it. Pretend that you're, um, you know, you're the backstage assistant. You're going to keep the uh, the cold drinks in the cooler. That's your job, and you get to hang around. You get to watch the bands and come in and just kind of be a fly on the wall. And there are 20 bands coming through this festival over the weekend. And you got yourself, you finagled yourself a pass to hang around backstage. And, and here they come one by one. And you're going to observe these people. And sometimes you're going to go out in the audience and watch the show too. Here's my list of 21 things that separate the pros from the amateurs. 
and the hacks way down at the bottom, the real hacks. Number one, dress, their clothing. Pros look like pros. They dress the part. They, they, they look a cut above. They, they don't look like the audience. That's important. And even if you're one of those people who insist on, you know, kind of the rock and roll vibe and you're going to do the, you know, there's an image for different types of music. And I know even in bluegrass, there are at least two different camps as that one side places more emphasis on this than the other. And you could say that the traditional side of bluegrass places more emphasis on appearance. And that is true. But the other side, the, the less traditional side of bluegrass, they're placing importance on appearance too. They are dressing the way they dress because that's the vibe that they like having a t-shirt with some really cool slogan on it is important to them. They're, per, they're putting out that vibe and perhaps for that side of the bluegrass audience that is viewed as a professional um, attribute. But anyway, the, certainly the traditional side going all the way back to Bill Monroe um, places a higher emphasis on dress. And it's, it's a, it's a, you know, this, this is not just true in bluegrass. If you, let's say back in the day, went to see, well, let's see, Mel Torme. Let's say you went to a Mel Torme show. Mel Torme is not coming out on stage in short pants and a t-shirt wearing flip-flops. Because it wouldn't be professional. He would look like a hack. He would look like an idiot. And you would feel like that, you know, 50 bucks you spent for that ticket was, uh, you know, you've been cheated. People expect the performers to live and exist in a world above them. This is what they expect. This is what they think. Now, it may not be true. It may be that performers are just like everybody else. They put on their pants one leg at a time and, you know, they, you know, digging in their sock drawer, trying to find two socks that match. This happens, but the audience prefers to believe that pros are a cut above. They're of a, a higher echelon. So give it to them. That's what I'm saying. Give it to them. You're fulfilling their dreams. Play the part. You know, if you're going to play Caesar in a, a Shakespeare play, dress like Caesar. You know, that's all I'm saying. Now, I will caution you that you have to be careful that there are certain situations where overdressing can be inappropriate. You know, you have to kind of base it upon the type of venues and audiences you're playing for. You know, if, if Dale McCurry is playing at the Georgia theater in Athens or the variety playhouse in Atlanta or wherever, he's going to come out looking sharp. But if, um, you know, there are probably other instances, let, let's say, just a couple of his friends invited him over and they were just going to have a little picking thing uh, because it was, you know, this guy's birthday and they've all been friends with him for a very long time. He's a, you know, fiddle player in another band and they all know each other and they're going to have a little birthday party and a little picking. Probably, you know, he's not going to show up in the same getup that he would. You know, he might just come with a nice button up shirt and you know what I mean? Kind of casual look. And still perform and play, but with a, you know he's going to roll a little off the top. You know you don't have to be on all the time. So just bear that in mind that if if you're playing, you know, a little local coffee shop for all your friends, it might be over the top to take that dress too far and to, you know, overdo it. You know, maybe you're singing, you know, these. Uh, 
Well, I don't know what kind of song. Let's say you're one of these, uh, you know, torchlight jazz vocalists or whatever. You know, you don't have to come in in the uh, four inch heels and the and the red sequin dress just to play, you know, for your six friends who came to the coffee shop. You know, now if there was an agent there, you know, it might be might be a good idea. But anyway, consider dress. That's number one. I better hurry up. There is, I got a long list to go through here. Number two, transportation. If you're driving a beat up van or a converted potato chip truck, that's your band vehicle. Uh, that's not going to create the same kind of impression that the pro, some pros, not, not all pros, you know, pulls up in his big shiny red tour bus. So you have to bear that in mind. You know, people are going to observe your means of transportation to get there. So I would just say, put your best foot forward and hide your weaknesses. If, if showing up in, you know, a bunch of junky cars, everybody driving separately and hauling the gear in the back of a pickup truck with a tarp thrown over it, if that's the way you do it, there's nothing wrong with that, but you might want to do it around back and just kind of be low key about it, you know, because that tells the audience, these guys are just like us. They're just a bunch of poor slobs, just like us. And so then they carry that attitude right into the performance and they think, oh, these guys are just a bunch of, you know, <laughs> you know, this, this is very common with part-time professionals and there are professionals who are part-time who have a day job who maybe work at an auto parts store or work for Delta airlines or are a bicycle repairman or a piano tuner or a school teacher. I just rattled off all the occupations of the members of Cedar Hill over the years. But when we showed up, we didn't pull up in a big shiny tour bus. We just kind of casually drifted in, didn't make a big to do about our gear. You know, yeah, we had a trailer with PA stuff in it, but you know, we didn't, you know, <laughs> I've had some pretty, pretty crummy vehicles over the years, but you know, I just park them and get out and I'd be, you know, dressed and ready to go and uh, wouldn't make a point to point out my, you know, clunky old Mazda pickup truck, <laughs> you know? So what I'm saying is, uh, how you arrive at a gig can hurt or help the impression that you make. And if you don't have the wherewithal to, you know, do it first class, you know, the big tour bus or, or whatever, we'll just kind of keep it, you know, on the, on the sly a little bit. There were these dudes. We used to play this place called the, the Macintosh amphitheater in Peachtree city, Georgia. And this is back in the early eighties. And, Cedar Hill played there several times throughout the summer and they would always have two or three bands. There was this other band, this like country rock band that used to uh, perform down there too. And I remember on one occasion we were on stage performing and they had, I, I, I mentioned that, that uh, potato chip truck. They had an old potato chip van. It looks kind of like a UPS truck. An old, you know, rejected, broken down uh, potato chip van, and they had painted their band name on the side of it. I don't remember the name of the band. And they come pulling up there backstage while we were performing, you know, no muffler on the thing. It was smoking like crazy. It's backfired, and they're trying to back it up this little little road through the woods back to the backstage unloading area. And it was just comical to see this thing. That doesn't create a, a great impression. They would have been better just to, um, I don't know, anything, but that was just really drawing attention to their funkiness is what I'm saying. So if you're funky, you know, you might want to hide the funkiness is all I'm saying. All right. Number three, attitude. This is, uh, you know, pros, they exude confidence. They They just seem confident without being pompous. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some pompous pros. There are. I think that hurts their career. 
but they seem like they know what they're doing. The best that you can try to seem like you know what you're doing. Amateurs exude kind of a nervous weakness and a kind of a lack of preparation, you know? And, you know, really that comes with experience, but at least think about that. What's your attitude? Number four, pros do not practice backstage, you know, in that warm up area. You know, that guy back there, you know, reloading the soft drinks and put some ice in the, in the Cokes for the performers. You know, that helper. And you're not going to see the pros back there practicing because they've already done all their practicing. They've got their arrangements. They have rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed way before they ever walk backstage. They don't need to practice. They might warm up. They might run through a few little, you know, half a, a chorus of this and the kickoff of that. And then they're, you know, maybe have a little sip of water, nibble on a little sandwich or something and wait for their call to go on stage. Amateurs often show up backstage furiously practicing and trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do and making last minute changes and corrections to, you know, right till the moment they walk on. So if you're practicing right before you go on, that's a sign of being a, a hack or an amateur. Uh, number five, pros are already in tune when they walk on stage. They're very rarely do you see pros fooling around tuning on stage. They're ready to play and you hear almost nothing from their instruments until they hit their first note, that downbeat of that first tune. They walk on and they play. Amateurs tend to putz around with their mics, plunking around, tuning, trying, you know, running through the intro, the little kickoff to the song, they'll play it like six times and then step up to the mic and play it the seventh time. And that's the for real one. This is not the way pros do it. Uh, pros, you know, tend to think of their performance as if they were playing on the Grand Ole Opry, you know, and you're on air. You don't come around plunking on your instruments. You walk on, you do all that backstage. When you walk on, you don't pick not even one pinch on the banjo, just a none of that. You just resist the urge to nervously plunk away on your instrument or strum chords or whatever. Now, if you do it, do it softly and don't point it towards a microphone. So the pros are in tune, ready to go and are waiting for the downbeat before they play amateurs tend to be goofing around and playing and all kinds of stuff before the downbeat of the first tune. Number six, pros don't drink on stage. Now I'm not saying there are not pros who consume booze while they're on stage. You know, I, I've seen them. I've seen them, you know, professionals with a liquor bottle sitting right beside their chair. But in general, that does not happen. You know, they may be drinkers. They may be big drinkers. They may be pill freaks and who knows what they do, but you won't see it. And if you do see it, it'll never be identified. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just unprofessional to walk out on stage. Now, maybe there are certain types of music, you know, uh, maybe in Lukenbach, Texas, this was a cool thing to do. But, you know, in the bluegrass scene, that's a, a sign of weakness. So you don't see pros drinking on stage. Now, that doesn't mean they don't drink. I, you know, I've, I've personally shook hands with Jimmy Martin, uh, you know, at a festival up in North Carolina one time. That man had been drinking. But I didn't see him. He didn't have a bottle with him on stage. You know, he didn't have a beer bottle and leaning over in between each song, taking a swig of beer. He did not do that. So pros, if they're smart, they drink backstage before they get on. And they, a pro wouldn't drink to excess to where it actually harms their playing. Same goes for huge meals. You know, if you're stuffing your face right before you go on stage, you are not going to play and sing as good as if you go on there a bit hungry because all, all the blood's going to rush from your body to your stomach and your digestive system. 
and uh, you know, you're going to be burping and just all kind of stuff. Don't eat a big meal before you perform. And pros know this. Pros save all that for after the show. They do all their consuming, major consuming of food and drink after their shows. And I don't even need to say this, but if you feel like you need to loosen up a little bit before you play by drinking or smoking weed or whatever, it probably is not. I mean, it might fool you into thinking it helps, but it's probably actually not going to help. You just think it helps, okay? And I've seen the downfall of several good performances by a nervous person who slugged down a couple of beers right before they walked out and it hit him, you know, midstream about the third song and started forgetting lyrics and just looking really stupid and stuff. And I, with all honesty, say this with some personal experience in that going way back quite a few years. I'll maybe tell that story one day, but I can tell you it only creates the feeling those sorts of crutches only create the feeling of confidence. It's, it's why they call it liquid courage. Um, but it's not the same as real confidence and real courage and really knowing what you're doing. But if you do it, keep it on the, keep it on the low down and don't do it to excess. Okay. Number seven pros talk to the audience. They're speaking to the audience when, Talking is part of their show. They do not carry on conversations among themselves. That's not to say they will never say anything to each other, but amateurs often seem to be having a little party up there among themselves because they're afraid to actually look at the audience and connect with the audience and speak to the audience. And there'll be these little side conversations going on. And I think I talked about this in another episode, so I'm not going to get into that, but a pro will, you know, just face the audience squarely, look them in the eye, all 5,000 pairs, and speak to them. That's they. You're in the audience. You want to connect with a performer. You don't want to watch them guys up there, you know, connecting with each other. Okay. Number seven. I'm sorry. Number eight. Pros have good arrangements, well thought out in advance, and they play them. Sometimes with some flexibility, I realize that, but this stuff's worked out in advance. Amateurs often just have a song list and they start and they don't have very well thought out arrangements and it comes out different every time. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes not so great. Same for kickoffs and endings. You know, pros spend a lot of time honing what they do, what you see may look off the cuff and just improvised and, but it's rarely true. Now, solos, you know, just to differentiate when it's your solo, you may have some pattern or some length of time that you're going to play so many times through the tune or whatever that may be planned, but your individual notes may be left up to you because there is certainly improvisation going on, but it's more happens in soloing. And there is a tiny bit of imp improv in singing, because if you're singing lead, you may just suddenly feel the urge and do something different and more spectacular. And that's easy to do when you're singing solo, when you're singing a verse and you're singing the lead, you got a little more flexibility because you don't have to match with the harmony singers. If you rephrase something a little differently or go to a different note, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. It may actually help. So there's improvisation in lead singing sometimes, but then when you get to harmonizing, it's harder to do that because two people will not think of the same improvisational modification at the same time, unless they've playing together, been playing together so long that they can read each other's minds. And that does occur, but that's doesn't occur for normal people very often. So I wouldn't count on that happening. Don't count on your tenor singer just picking up on the fact that you've completely changed the way you sing the chorus. He's probably not going to nail it. And then afterwards, you know, you're going to have some words about it. Okay. 
Number nine, pros. They surprisingly do not stick to a rock solid set list that's cast in stone. Pros know when to bend it, bend the list, drop a tune, add a tune, get the flow going in a different direction, you know, based on how the audience's reaction is happening. Amateurs sometimes come out there and, you know, stiffly march through their set list. And a set list is a good idea, but it is a guideline. So an amateur often will construct this set based upon their desire to play certain songs. And little concern is given to, well, what was the reaction to the song we just did? And should we continue that wave and build a little more? Or should we bring them down? Or should we, you know... Pros consider the flow of the show, tempo changes, key changes that, you know, like the ebb and flow of energy. And because they have so much material worked up at their disposal, little changes in the set can just happen very instantly. There have been times when, you know, we had a rock solid set list and that's a good thing to have, but there have been times when we've been on stage and I knew that the very next song was, was one I was going to sing before that was introduced. I have leaned over and whispered to Jimmy do such and such instead. Just, just go with me. And he did. And then I would sing a different song because for whatever reason, I just wasn't feeling like that thing was the thing right then. So being able to make little changes on the fly is a good thing. And also if you're sticking with that rock solid set list and you've been like a lot of amateurs doing a whole lot of fooling around and wasting time in between songs, it may be that you get the one more sign from the, stage manager and you're looking at four songs yet to go on the set list. What are you going to do now? Are you just going to play the next, you know, song number 10? Are you going to jump straight down to song number 13? What, what are you going to do? You've just been marching straight through this thing without occasionally looking at your watch and seeing where are you in the overall show. If you got 45 minutes and you're only halfway through the set and it's the 40 minute mark, you need to make a professional decision. Say, how are we going to close this thing? Do we really want to close it on that slow ballad thing? Or do we want to go ripping out with, I always like to have the last two songs in the set, kind of those I'm going to cast in stone. So that when I get that sign two more boys, we're just, we're jumping straight to the final two. That's our ending. That's all worked out. And that is a proven winner. So we're going to go down there. If, if we have to jump ahead, we're cutting this stuff at the, you know, at the three quarter mark. So don't be too rock solid in your, in your set lists and try to be aware of, you know, your effect on the audience and think of the energy changes as waves. You don't want to peak too early. And you don't want long lulls that lose your audience. I think I did a podcast about set lists once before. Okay, number 10. God, I better hurry up. This is, we're already going 30, 38 minutes. This is a short one. Pros introduce songs. If they introduce them at all. Sometimes you just play a song. Sometimes I think a great technique is to do a little mini set right from the get go. You just walk out, you play the first one, bam, and you hit them with another one. And then, then maybe you mention the next song and you talk about songs when there's a reason to talk about them. You don't have to talk about every song. Some of them you can just play. Sometimes there's a good reason, or you can use those introductions as a way to gradually over the course of the set, introduce the musicians to the audience by name when they are about to be featured. You know, you don't have to walk up there and just rattle off all the members real quick and get that out of the way. You know, you might want to just save talking about the banjo player right before that hot banjo instrumental or the, you know, you get what I'm saying? 
I, I played a little gig. I hope I haven't told this story. I'm sure I'm starting to repeat stories, but I played a little gig one time as a fill-in bass player with these guys. And what they did is they played their whole show pretty much without saying anything to the audience. And then when it was all over, I mean, literally, they had played their last song. And people are starting to file out of the room. That's when they announced the band members who was in the band and thanked him. And I was like, man, this is just this is poor timing. All right. So 10, pros introduce songs. Amateurs often outroduce songs. <laughs> While they're playing the song, they think of stuff they wanted to say about it. And they you know, didn't have their ducks in a row to say it before the song, so they say it after. You talk about anticlimactic. If you're done with a song, that ain't the time to talk about it. You know, you talk about the next song, you know, always moving forward. Number 11, pros are never seen dealing with money issues. You know, trying to find the owner and getting paid, that is all made invisible to the public. And any disagreement with the, you know, club owner or promoter and issues that have come up, that's all kept private and hidden. That is nobody's business but the two parties. Amateurs sometimes do this stuff publicly, you know, counting out the wads of money after the show, divvying it up, dumping out the tip bucket on the front table right in front of everybody and making five piles so that they can dole the money out to the members. You know, you at least want to do that kind of semi-privately. I've done that. I, I have, you know, I played eight years in this bar every Thursday night. And at the end of the night, I would dump the tip bucket out on the table and split it up in five piles and just hand it to each guy. But the crowd was already pretty much gone. You know, the show was over. We were already tearing down the PA. Nobody was really seeing this, you know. But anyway, money issues and things like that are, are kept private by professionals and foolishly, you know, made somewhat public by amateurs. All right, number 12, pros, smile. It could be the worst day of their life. Maybe their dog just died. Wife just got cancer. They just got a, an envelope in the mail from the IRS. You will never know that if they're a pro. The amateur may, he may tell you all about that stuff. And, and, you know, you don't want to hear other people's problems. You didn't come to a show to, to, you know, I'm not saying sometimes these things are not mentioned, but you know, you want to bring down an audience, get up on stage and start talking about your problems. People go to music performances to forget their problems. Doesn't mean you can't sing about them. In the context of a song, you may sing about these sorts of problems. And the, that the audience has, they have these same problems. They're people too. And hearing it in a musical form may be good for them. But, you know, don't air your dirty laundry on stage or even backstage or even just, you know, shooting a breeze at the record table. And, you know, leave your problems at home. People got enough problems. They don't, they don't want to hear about your problems. Okay. Number 13 pros typically have some additional product to sell in addition to the product of entertainment, which is their main product, but they'll have other products to sell and they will mention them and not feel guilty about it. Just be very straightforward about it and ask you to come visit their table and take home a record. <laughs> Amateurs often have product. Set it up in the completely worst possible place. Forget to mention it or talk about it way too much. You know, number 14 pros often offer to the audience a completely different reason to stop by their merchandise table. They kind of put it out as, you know, come see us, shake our hand, you know, shake your hand, talk, get a picture. Taking off, you know, autographs, this kind of thing, you know, they invite you into their world and their little world at that moment is that record table and they're inviting you to come see them. And they're there, or at least, you know, 
Some of them are there. Some of them got work to do and are hauling gear to the bus. Amateurs, you know, tend to be overly commercial about it. Like, be sure to come buy our CD and buy our CD. It's only 10 bucks. And, you know, much better to say, you know, stop by and, you know, would love to meet you. You know? Oftentimes, too, I've seen professionals who are, they got a little product to sell, but there's nobody back there selling it, you know, or, or like one of the guys has a girlfriend and she's sitting back there, you know, filing her nails or looking at her cell phone or something. And the audience is just filing by. They don't really want to stop because the band's not even there. You know, they're in the back arguing with each other about who screwed up, you know, this song or that song or. Or they're, you know, chugging down beers in the back and nobody's manning the table. Manning the table is important. We used to have, um, you know, one or two guys immediately make a beeline for the table and leave, leave the gear and the instruments. You can just leave your banjo. I will pack up your stuff. Hit it. Go, 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 go. Be at that table. And then as we finished up what we were doing, we would, you know, arrive back there too. Cause sometimes there's this one guy there that he just waiting on me to show up. Cause he wants to talk to me about his mandolin or something. Okay. Number four, uh, number 15, uh, pros rehearse amateurs practice. There's a difference. Practice is like running through stuff. Rehearsing is envisioning that what you're playing is on stage rehearsing your show, not just your songs. Anyway, there's a, there's a difference between rehearsal and practice. Pros rehearse 16 pros will have good, well-maintained gear. Doesn't have to be the newest stuff. I, I, I can tell you over the, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years, at least five or six times. I have gone down to Lowe's or Home Depot or hardware store and bought a couple of cans of flat black spray paint. And I have dragged out our mic stands, speaker cabinets, different things, things that once were black and have been, you know, had the snot beat out of them over the years and rust and stuff and just cleaned up, you know, like unscrewed all the bases off the mic stands lined them up on some newspaper, did a little sand, a little scrubbing with a wire brush, sprayed them all flat black, top and bottom, come by an hour later, gave it another coat, sprayed the monitors and re-stenciled our name across the monitor speaker, just sprucing things up. That's what pros do. Amateurs just haul the junky, nasty stuff around until it falls apart, and they don't care what they look like. All right, so pros have good, reliable, well-maintained gear, and they know how to use it. They practice with the gear. They they practice testing and testing and testing. It just seems like amateurs are always having gear problems. Number 17, pros know how to work a microphone, and many amateurs do not. I've talked about that in, a, in another podcast, so I won't go further with that. 18, this is just a little pet peeve of mine. Pros, and these are pros who are setting up their own PA. They know to leave a little bit of slack in the microphone cable so that the mic can be adjusted a little bit up or down or tilt without straining the connector. Amateurs, I've seen this so many times in an effort to, you know, do a really neat job and They'll wind that cord around there tighter than a boa constrictor around that stand. And they're guessing at the heights of the thing. And sometimes you have a guest walks up, you know, somebody comes up and says, Hey, can I make some announcements? And you know, they're five foot two and you're six, four, they need to move the microphone and, and the cord is fighting them all the way. Anyway, that's just one of my little pet peeves. Anticipate 
the mic might need some slight adjustment. So don't make it difficult by, you know, binding everything up by winding that cable tighter and all get out. I also can't stand while I'm on that. I can't stand people that just sling cords willy nilly every which way overlapping and you don't know what's what, you know, try to be neat and organized about what you're doing and try to keep as much of that cable out of eyesight of the audience as possible and out from under the feet of the musicians. I cannot stand standing on a cord on top of the fact that it's not good for the cords. Even if you got a rug thrown down and you still put those cords around the edges, you know, get yourself some sort of system for it, you know, coil the excess cord neatly in front of each microphone and then, You'll be able to find problems a lot quicker, too, if, oh, man, mic number three is not working. Well, uh, which cord is it? You know, take a little care. And that means showing up early, you know. All right. Enough of that. Nineteen. I've talked about this before, too. Man, I'm really starting to repeat myself a lot. Nineteen. Pros. Do not tap on the microphones. Well, let me say it this way. Amateurs tap it on the mic saying, check, check, check a lot, pulling cords in and out, flicking the switches back and forth. And they just act like they don't know how to operate the gear that they're about to play on. Pros, you, you'd never see that. Now you might see it in a sound check, but even then it's not as I've sat through plenty of sound checks where we were an opening act for for like a traveling pro band and we're there, we got to do a check and they're doing theirs. We sit through their sound check because typically the opening act sound check is second. They, they sound check the main band and then they sound check the opening act and then they leave it because the opening act is going to go on first. So the opening act generally sound check, sound check second. And then, you know, the, the big boys have gone off to eat while you're sound checking. But you don't see this stuff. Don't monkey around with this stuff. Monkeying around with it makes you look like an idiot. So learn what you're doing, you know? All right, enough of that. And, and last thing on that is if, if you're constantly asking for something in the monitors, uh, maybe you didn't know how to properly soundtrack. Oh, look, I know there's always the possibility that you have a complete moron for a sound man. I know that or an inattentive, well-meaning, you know, punk rock guy. You know, he he's trying, but he just doesn't know bluegrass. That's always a possibility. But I'm saying that, um, you know, if you're asking for changes in the monitors halfway through your set, you didn't have a very good sound check and you didn't communicate with them and you didn't work these things out beforehand. That's the purpose of a sound check is get it right beforehand. Anyway, number 20. Pros tend to have well-thought-out business practices, which is how they run their band, the contracts, and how they who communicates with the client, you know, who does what, and how they communicate among each other. And then sometimes they're, you know, kind of a, a group acting as in a democratic fashion. Sometimes it's employee-employer type relationship. Amateurs tend to fail in this area. They're just bad communicators and there tends to be a lot of bickering in the ranks because of the lack of communication. All right. 21 pros know the deal. And I mean, by the deal, the, the contract, be it verbal or written, they know the deal before the gig. It, there's very little information, you know, yeah, where to, you know, which direction are the bathrooms and, you know, where do we put our cases, that kind of stuff they find out on the spot, but they know what time they're playing, how many sets they're going to play, what type of audience it is, you know, is it indoors or outdoors? What does it pay? How will we be paid? Is there a deposit? And, you know, the rest at the end of the gig, and is it going to be by check and who will the check be made out to? All this stuff is nailed down before the gig and they abide by it. What, what is in the contract is what they do. It doesn't mean they will never be flexible. And if disagreements arise, and frankly, they rarely do arise because of the, if you work all that stuff out in advance, there's really nothing to argue over. 
But if they do arise, if a disagreement arises, you know, between a, a let's say a performer and a promoter, let's just use that word. These things are settled privately, you know, and sometimes with some flexibility and a little accommodation on the band's part, you know, a professional has enough experience to know when, look, enough's enough, you know, this, uh, this is the deal. This is our, we demand X, but they also know when they should bend a little because they don't want to burn their bridges. And, you know, you also don't want to be taken advantage of, but amateurs don't know this stuff and are often kind of short sighted and have this kind of one gig mentality, this gig. And, uh, and a lot of the, the things that might create a conflict just weren't discussed or worked out prior to the gig and amateurs tend to not have the long view. Okay. What number was that? That was 21. We're almost done here. The last thing, and I, this is very important. And, and this is true for pros in that performing setting or that professional attitude. Not, not like acting like you're a big shot. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about that, that confident, like if you're at a jam session or you just go over to somebody's picking party or you get asked to fill in on bass with this band and maybe they're not so pro, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they're just kind of a throw together thing. Some guys that do this once in a while, but they've asked you, well, you want to fit in with them, but you also want to exude some professionalism in what you do and the way you play. I haven't talked much about the way you play, but a professional, does all those other things. But when they're playing, you put your heart into what you're doing. No matter how large a gig it is or how small it is, pros are pouring everything they got into the music while they're performing. That doesn't mean they always do everything the same. And they, you know, they do alter their performance based upon the setting or their feeling at the time or their Sometimes, you know, there are some gigs that things are really clicking and sometimes they're not. So sometimes you feel it more. And when you're feeling it, you put more in it. But pros have um, a better ability to go up there and put on a good face and direct their energy into that song and really just, I mean, pros just, a, you know, if you want a very simple example, Pros will often visualize the song themes and content while they are singing it. Where an amateur, he is not. He's saying the words without thinking about it. I, I did a whole episode on that. But anyway, just remember, pros pour their heart into what they're doing. Both performance and all those other things. Pour your heart into how you maintain your microphone cords. I'm not saying you have to be all anal about it, but you know, be professional about all aspects of what you're doing. Even if you're just running a little jam session, you know, do you want to run out of coffee and, oh, nobody had any creamer and, you know, people came and they were like, ah, kind of those cookies were stale. If you run a little jam session, do it with a professional attitude, you know, if you ask all the jammers to uh, contribute $5 each when they come, get it, you know, but, you know, be willing to, you know what I'm saying, do things professionally. But if you are an amateur and you will never reach the professional level of performance, that is perfectly okay. I am not saying good means you're professional. You can be have a professional attitude, even if you are a lifelong amateur. Just don't be a hack. Anyway, thanks for listening. I know this one was kind of long. Uh, thanks a bunch. And as always, I appreciate when you visit BradleyLaird.com and scope out some of my wide array of instructional materials. And if you don't need them, I'll bet you you know somebody that who does. And by the way, in a past uh, recent episode, I talked about um, re 
the new version of Jam Session Survival, and it is finished and it's live. It's up there, the new mobile edition of Jam Session Survival. And it's really great if you're an iPhone type person, which pretty much everybody is. Without spending a bunch of time here because I've already gone too long, I will put a link to it on the show notes for this episode. So, you, you know, you know the routine. Go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode and click it. And I'll put a link there that'll take you directly to the new mobile edition of Jam Session Survival. And uh, that's it. I will talk to you in the next episode.